We don't have a contract relationship with God. We have a love relationship with God. That he is our father. And he gives us on the basis of grace because he loves us, not on the basis of what we deserve. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. So if you could open your Bibles to Job 32, Job 32, actually we're going to start in verse 30, in chapter 33. As you recall, we're studying the life of Job. He's a man who lived about 4,500 years ago. His life still speaks volumes to us today. In previous lessons, we saw that Job was wealthy, he was wise, he was godly, he was good, he was a businessman, he was a family man. God had very high praise for Job. God told Satan in front of the entire angelic host that Job was unique. There was no one like him on the earth. Now, that's either really, really good or really, really bad to be unique, right? But God said he's blameless, he's upright, he fears God, and he turns away from evil. There's no one like him. Of course, Satan turns around, as you recall, and says, well, he serves you only because you bless him. I mean, you've given him health and wealth and family and friends. I mean, anybody would serve you, God, if you blessed him like that. Come on. So God gave Satan permission. Satan asked it, and in a short order, Satan had destroyed Job's health, wealth, family, friends, social position, etc., etc. And his wife said, you got to be some kind of fool. Curse God and die in this thing. Let's get out of here. So Job has lost everything except his life. And that's barely by the skin of his teeth, as he said. At the point of this passage today, he's been suffering for months. He's got three friends who traveled a long distance and they are there to comfort him, but that comfort doesn't last beyond seven days. They comforted him when they shut up the first seven days and didn't say anything. It was the best thing they did. Then they opened their mouth, and for the next 30-some chapters, they have been accusing him of being a great sinner whom God is punishing, and that's why he's suffering, because he's been a wicked, evil man. They don't have any evidence of this, but that's their assumption. So they assume that the only reason God would ever allow anyone to suffer is because they have sinned, because, of course, each and every good person always experiences God's physical blessings here on earth. Now, Job has a dilemma. He can't find anything in his life that would warrant this suffering. He can't find any sin in his life, and so he comes to the conclusion over about 30 chapters that God is unjust for allowing an innocent man like me to suffer. So he wants to take God to court and force God to bang down the gavel and declare him just. Much of this book, as a matter of fact, from chapter 4 onward until today, has just been a series of dialogues or disputes between Job and his three friends. I mean, they're arguing back and forth. They're calling each other all sorts of wonderful names in this book. You ought to read it. It's kind of interesting. It's poetry, so you got to kind of, you know, put your big boy boots, big girl boots on to get through it. But at any rate, 
these three people, his friends and Job, never come together on why Job is suffering. They're convinced the only reason he suffers, he's a sinner, and Job says, I can't find anything in my life that I need to confess. I don't know why I'm suffering. God is unjust. So Job is now, and has been for most of the book, sitting at the city dump because he, he's unclean. He's got a skin disease. He can't go into town. He's outside the town on the dump. And we always assume that it's just him and the three friends sitting around the city dump. Actually, there's probably quite a cohort of people that are listening to these three debate Job. And one of them is a young man named Elihu. And his name means he is my God. And we're going to pick up his narrative today. He is furious at Job's three friends because they've condemned Job and they have provided no evidence. They've said, you're evil and wicked without any justification whatsoever. And he's furious at Job because Job has said God is unjust, and Job hasn't been able to demonstrate that either. Now, he's younger than the three of them, and he's been listening probably, I don't know how long these, these debates took. It could have been a matter of a couple of weeks. He's not interrupting. He's listening. And he's going to take a different approach. First thing he says is, what I'm going to tell you comes from God. Now, that's a pretty large statement. You need to be very, very sure when you say, what I'm saying comes from God. In our day, we would say, have your finger on the page when you use those kinds of words. But the second thing he does is rather unique. Job's three friends insist that the only reason Job is suffering is because God is punitive. God is punishing Job. Elihu says, well, that's not true. God also allows suffering to teach us. God allows suffering to guide us, to educate us, to correct us, to redirect us at that point. And thirdly, Elihu says, Job, exercise faith in God and stop demanding that God tell you why he runs his universe the way he runs his universe. So in that era, as you probably have gathered by reading the book so far, verbose, that means verbal diarrhea, lots of words were really esteemed and elaborate wording, etc., etc. And when you listen to Elihu, for six chapters, he talks nonstop. It's 156 some verses. He's got a lot of words, right? And we would say at this point in time, look, land the airplane, stop circling the runway, get to the point, right? So he summarizes Job's three major complaints beginning in chapter 33, verse 8. So if you could open your Bibles to Job 33, 8, Elihu is now summarizing what Job has been saying for the last 30 chapters. Verse 8, surely you have spoken in my hearing, and I've heard the sound of your words. I am pure, Job is saying, I am pure, I am without transgression. I am innocent, and there's no guilt in me. Behold, God invents pretexts against me. God counts me as his enemy. God puts my feet in the stocks, he watches all my paths. Now, Elihu, to his credit, has been listening for a long time. He's heard all the arguments, and they've run out of gas, and now he's going to comment. And he's going to accurately summarize Job's complaints against God. And there are three. Job is angry at God and complains against God for three major reasons. Number one, he says, God is silent. God doesn't respond to me. Number two, God is unjust, and he doesn't relieve my suffering. I've been suffering for months and months and months and months, and I'm innocent, and God is unjust to allow this to happen. And number three, 
God is unconcerned about me. He doesn't reward me for my innocence. I've lived this good life, and what do I get? Pain and suffering. So those are the three major complaints that Job has with God, and Elihu is now going to refute those. He's going to deal with Job on that. So the first complaint that Job has is God is silent. He's not responsive. That's found in Job 13, 22. And Job is saying, and he's talking at this point in time, and he's talking to God. And he says, God, call me and I will answer. Or let me speak and then reply to me. How many are my iniquities and sins? Make me know my rebellion and my sin. Verse 24, why do you hide your face and consider me your enemy? Now that's the complaint Job has. That's his beef with God. Elihu deals with this in chapter 33, verse 13. So if you turn to verse 13 of chapter 33, and Elihu says to Job, why do you complain against God that he does not give an account of all his doings? Indeed, God speaks once or twice, yet no one notices it. In a dream or a vision, when sound sleep falls on people, when they slumber in their beds, then God opens the ears of people and seals their instruction that God may turn man aside from his conduct and keep man from pride. He keeps back his soul from the pit and his life from passing over into shield. Here's the principle. God communicates with people in many, many ways, but most people don't listen. So Elihu says, look, Job, God has not been silent. He's been communicating with you at least two or three ways, number one, through dreams, and number two, through sickness. Now, in that era, before God's word was written down, God often spoke to people through dreams and visions, etc. As a matter of fact, Job's friend Eliphaz in chapter 4 says he had a vision where a spirit asked him how anybody could be right with God, which, of course, is a good question. Remember that Jacob had a dream. Remember, he was in the land going north, and he had a dream of angels descending up and down on a ladder. Joseph had a dream about sheaves of wheat bowing down before him. Pharaoh had a dream about seven lean cows and seven fat cows. And Nebuchadnezzar had a dream about a giant statue and another one about a giant tree. So all of these were God communicating to people, most of them, about what was going to happen in the future. And even today on Mission Frontiers, God often speaks to people in dreams. Where there is no Bible available, the Lord speaks to people in dreams and visions, happens fairly regularly where Scripture is not available. Elihu further says down, I think, in verse 23, he says, God can speak to people through angels. And, of course, when you read the Bible, angels talk to people on, on a common basis. Angels spoke to Lot. Angels spoke to Gideon, the mother of Samson, Daniel, Mary, Zechariah, John, just to name a few in Scripture. So God is able to communicate with people and biblically has communicated with people in a wide variety of ways. You say, okay, Brad, that's fine, but I've never had a vision. I've had a few nightmares, but, you know, maybe that was just a chilly rain. No, it wasn't God, you know, just so how does God communicate today? Well, number one way is, is you have his will and his word written down in form. It's actually in English. I mean, we can comprehend this thing, right? It's in our own language. So he, he speaks to people through his living word, the Lord Jesus Christ, and his written word, the Bible, which he opens our minds with through the Holy Spirit. So if you want to know the will of God, it's real simple. It's in the Word of God. It's, it's actually written down. When you read God's Word, you should always ask God to open your mind. Because as I get older, my mind doesn't work as well as it used to. Not that it ever worked really well, but it's not working better with time. 
right? So you ask the Holy Spirit, open my mind, teach me what you want me to know. And you know something? He does. It's amazing. If you ask him, Lord, I don't, I don't understand this passage. I mean, I'm confused. He will open your mind and teach you. The Holy Spirit does that. Now, additionally, God communicates through his creation. Psalm 19 one says, it's pretty obvious that God exists because the heavens are telling the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. You can look at the interstellar galaxies and go, well, it didn't come from nothing, right? I could spend days on creation. But anyway, Psalm 8 is a psalm of praise. Psalm 8, verse 1, O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. How do we know that? You've displayed your glory above the heavens. The further we go into interstellar space, we've measured somewhere around a billion galaxies with about a billion stars per galaxy. Some remarkably big numbers here. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you've established strength. So God communicates to people from the macro, interstellar galactic space, to the micro, the baby in the crib. Both, right? And just like Job... Most people do not listen. I am amazed, I guess, that you could look at a newborn baby and not be in awe of God. But some people are. Now, Elihu says, God doesn't only communicate through dreams and visions and, and angels and his word, etc., etc. He says, God, Job's been, God's been communicating with you, Job, through suffering through illness, through sickness. Go to verse 19. Job 33, 19. Man, he's talking to Job here, but he's also talking to you and I, is also chastened with pain on his bed and with unceasing complaint in his bones. I was talking to Gary, and I said, my back hurts when I sleep. You know, maybe that's part of the communication business here, you know? Verse 20. So that his life loathes bread and his soul favorite food. His flesh wastes away from his sight, and his bones which were not seen stick out. Then his soul draws near to the pit, and his life to those who bring death. Behold, God does all these things for a man two or three times to bring back his soul from the pit so that he be enlightened with the light of life. Here's the principle. You're not going to like this. I don't like this, but it's true. Pain in the present can prevent sin in the future. If we learn the lessons God's teaching us. Pain in the present can prevent sin in the future if we learn the lessons God is teaching us. So Elihu tells Job, God is allowing you to suffer not to punish you, but to teach you and keep you from further sin and death. In other words, pain can be used to prevent further sin. Let me give you a concept here. You've heard of feedback loops. Pleasure is a feedback loop. Success is a feedback loop. It's a positive feedback loop. When you do something that works, what do you do? More of it. Yes? If something feels good, Marty eats one scoop of ice cream, then he eats two, then he eats ten, right? I mean, that's right. If it feels good, we do more of it. That's a positive feedback loop. It's a reinforcing cycle. That's pleasure. Now, pain is a negative feedback loop. Pain tends to push us to stop what we're currently doing because it hurts and reconsider our current situation, our current course of action. God uses pain to wake people up and, quite frankly, redirect their path away from sin. 
C.S. Lewis wrote an interesting book called The Problem of Pain, and the answer was not medication, but it's useful. And he says, God whispers to us in our pleasure, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. A national example of that principle occurred in Israel about 520 B.C. Israel's been back in the land. Remember, they were carried away into captivity by the Babylonians for centuries of, of rebelliousness and sin. God told them it was going to happen. And they've, been, they've finished their time. They've done their 70 years in Babylon. They've been back in the land for about 15 years, back in Israel. There's a small group of them, and they've been experiencing some hard times, and they don't understand why. So God sent them a prophet, Haggai, to tell them what was going on. Haggai 1-2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, this people, he's talking about the nation of Israel, says, the time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there is not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there is not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Well, that's diagnostic. If everything in your life is not working, that may be a clue that you should consider your ways, which means stop. That's a pain loop that says stop what you're currently doing and evaluate whether you're headed down a course you shouldn't be going on. In verse 8, God says, here's the prescription, now that I've got your attention. Go up to the mountains, bring wood, and rebuild my house, that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts? Because of my house, which lies desolate, while each of you runs to his own house. Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I, God, called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, on the labor of your hands. So here's the picture. God brought Israel supernaturally out of captivity back to the land. They rebuilt the altar, but for the next 15 years, they were busy building their own. By the way, in that era, paneled houses was a big deal. That's like a mansion. A paneled house took a lot of labor because it was all hand labor. They didn't have any skill saws back then, and no electricity either. It was all hand work. So a paneled house, you were putting a lot of work into a paneled house. But God's house was desolate. It was neglected. It was trashed. I mean, they didn't rebuild the thing since the Babylonians got there. So they were busy building their houses for 15 years, and rocking and rolling in their life, and they had gotten very used to spending no time with God at all. Zero. He wasn't a priority in their life, and they were busy doing their thing, and so God withheld the rain, and they had no crops. Now, hunger will get your attention. Most of the time. After about 72 hours, it gets pretty intense. So God says in verse 11, I called for a drought on everything. Mountains, land, grain, new wine, oil, ground produces, because I want your attention. I want you to pay attention to what's going on. I want you to consider your ways. I want you to take a look at the direction you're going. The Chinese philosopher 
Lao to Zhu says, and this is going to sound really obvious, but it's profound, if you do not change direction, you may end up where you're heading. <laughs> Rob's got something on the screen, doesn't he? If you do not change direction, you may end up where you're heading. Now, that begs a really profoundly simple question. Do you know the destination that your current direction is taking you? We are all headed in a direction. And that direction has a trajectory, and that trajectory has a destination. Daily decisions are always directional. They move you in a direction. And that direction implies a destination. Interesting question. If you keep doing what you're currently doing now, where will you be in 10 years? Decisions we make or fail to make, of course, have outcomes. I have a friend who for the last 35 years has been drinking between one and two six-packs every day of a drink called Tab, which they don't make anymore. He would go to the where they make that stuff, and he'd order it by the case or by the truckload because he couldn't get it. Now, there are consequences to drinking a couple of six-packs of Tab a day for 35 years. And we say, well, Brad, that's pretty, I mean, I don't do Tab. I may do other diet drinks, but not Tab. I mean, that's pretty sad, you know? <laughs> so when you make a habit of reading your Bible every day for at least oh, 10 minutes, big sacrifice, right? What you're saying is, at least for 10 minutes, I've, I'm committing to listen to what God has to say to my life. When you fail to read your Bible today, what you're saying, at least for today, is that I'm smart enough to get through today without God's input. Hmm. I'm not that smart. I used to think I was. But I ran the bus off the road any number of occasions. And, you know, when you get in enough wrecks, you start saying, maybe I'm not a very good driver on my own here, right? So the truth of it is the Bible says, left to our own devices apart from God's intervention, we will reliably choose to move away from God, to the pit, to death. And when we wander away from God, he often redirects us back to him through pain. The truth of it is, God of the Bible is a father. He's a merciful, patient, loving Father who blesses us, paradoxically, He blesses us with pain. To draw us away from sin and death and bad choices, to draw us closer to Him. Many times we don't know the outcome of our decisions, but God always knows the outcome of our decisions, so He intervenes in our life to change the course of our life. A couple weeks ago I mentioned that in 1982, I'd shattered my ankle snow skiing at Lake Tahoe, and of course, they had put in six screws, metal plates, all this other stuff, and I had eight months of PT and four months of crutches. What I didn't tell you is God used that to change the direction of my life. Um, later that year, I applied for naval, the Naval Officer Candidate School, but I was turned down because I still had metal screws in my ankle. They said, when you get all the metal out of your ankle, come back and talk to us. And I said, well, that's going to be in two years, right, year and a half. Well, by the time the surgeon went back and then got them in 84, God had completely changed the direction of my life. So if I had gone in the Navy, I wouldn't be here. And Marin probably wouldn't be here either. 
God blessed me with pain back then in order to keep me from doing something that was contrary to his will. So you can look back over the course of your life. I recommend you do it occasionally. And, and, and just make a list of, of coincidences, things that happened. They probably were not fun things. They were probably painful things. But they were periods where God was using pain to redirect your life. And at that point, you had a decision to make. Either I'm going to submit to the Lord or I'm going to rebel against him and I'm going to say, I'm not listening to you no matter how painful it gets. Of course, God has solutions for that. He can outlive us, number one. But he's a father who loves us. He never allows pain without purpose, and the purpose is motivated by love for us. So God communicates with people through dreams, through visions, through circumstances, through providence, through suffering, through his people, through creation, through his word, through his son. So none of us can say, well, you know, I've never really heard from God. God doesn't communicate with me. No, God communicates all day, every day. The issue is, are we listening? So that's Elihu's number one refutation to Job. Job's second bellyache with God is that God is unjust. And God is unjust because he doesn't relieve my suffering. And that complaint is found in Job 19.6. Job says, know then that God has wronged me and has closed his net around me. Verse 7, behold, I cry violence, but I get no answer. I shout for help, but there is no justice. So Job says, look, I'm blameless of anything that would justify this suffering. And that's true. God did say Job was blameless. Job is clearly not suffering because he's sinful. He's, he's blameless, which means no one can rightly charge him with any violation of God's covenant. Even today, many people draw the false conclusion that suffering is always a symptom of sin. So if you're suffering, you're obviously sinful. That is not biblically true, even though the health and wealth gospel sometimes will try and preach that to you at that point in time. So some people say, well, I know what your spiritual relationship with God is like by looking at your physical circumstances. That is absolutely not scriptural in any way, shape, or form. It's a false assumption. Many, many times the wicked do prosper in this life, and often the righteous do suffer. You can read the Bible, and you will see God's people suffering on a routine basis, and they are absolutely right with God at the time. So Job is blameless, and yet he's suffering, so he draws a conclusion, but it's the wrong conclusion. He concludes that because he's innocent and yet suffering, God is unjust, and God is treating Job like the enemy. He says, God has imprisoned me in his net, and he's trapped me. If you've ever known anyone, or maybe you have yourself, have experienced chronic pain, pain that just won't leave you alone, it feels like a prison. It feels, it feels like your life is just being ground down with sandpaper, and it's exhausting, and it can wear you down. And It doesn't have to be physical pain. It can be emotional pain. It can be a lot of different kinds of pains. What's interesting is in the beginning of this book, when Job lost everything, he submitted to the will of God. Right after Satan's attacks in Job 121, he said what? The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So his focus was on God, God's sovereignty, God's wisdom, God's provision, God's love. However, after a few months of very intense pain, Job's focus is on himself. He's so convinced of his own innocence 
that he, the creature, begins to judge the creator. He says, I'm declaring you are unjust, and we're going to court, and I'm going to charge you with injustice. He claims that God is unjust because he doesn't deal with Job's pain. Now, the truth of it is, pain has a way of shortening our time horizon, right? When you're in pain, what do you think about? That's it. I mean, I've smashed my toe into furniture, and when your toe's throbbing, that is the world, the toe, right, until it stops throbbing. And then you look down and you realize you bled all over the carpet when you're walking from point A to point B, right? So, done that too. So, pain makes us very time-sensitive and very self-centered. Job wants God to respond and do it now, and we often pray like this. We cry out to God for deliverance. We say, God, save me right now. And if he doesn't do it, one, we conclude his hearing aid is broken. He needs to get another battery, or he forgot to put him in. Number two, he hears me, but he doesn't really care. Or number three, he cares, but he can't do anything. He's just powerless. I mean, he's kind of like Santa Claus up there with no, uh, no wings and no suit and no, no sleigh. And the truth of it is, none of those are true. None of those are true. Job 33, 12, Elihu's going to now deal with Job's charge that God is unjust. And he starts in Job 33, 12, and he says, Behold, Job, let me tell you, you are not right in this, for God is greater than man. Jump over to 34, 10. He says, Therefore, listen to me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God to do evil and from the Almighty to do wrong. For God repays the person for his work and lets things happen in correspondence to a man's behavior. God will certainly not act wickedly, and the Almighty will not pervert justice. Who gave God authority over the earth, and who has placed the whole world on him? Verse 14, if he should determine to do so, if he should gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together, and man would return to dust. Verse 19, God shows no partiality to princes, nor regards the rich above the poor, for they all the work of his hands. Here's the principle. Since our sovereign God is infinitely power and powerful and completely good, we can always trust him to do what is right. Since our sovereign God is infinitely powerful and completely good, we can always trust him to do what's right. And I know many of you say, boy, that is right. Until the pain happens to me. And then we say, are you sure you love me? Are you really sure you're paying attention? So Elihu confronts Job. He says, you're wrong in criticizing God. God is infinitely greater than man. And Job, you're not qualified to judge God because God is infinite and he has purposes beyond what finite humanity can comprehend. God is running the universe and I have trouble fixing lunch, you know, in a half hour. So the scope of responsibility is just a tad different for God than humanity. And since humans can't comprehend God, Elihu says, Job, you don't have a right to criticize God. Now, he's going to give Job several instances to demonstrate that God is, in fact, just. In verse 11, he says, look, God is a just judge because he gives man exactly what he deserves when punishing sin. Verse 11 says, for God pays a man according to his work and makes him yeah, find it in accordance with his way. So God demonstrates his justice when he deals with people. He is just because he gives people what they deserve. 
Secondly, in verse 10 and 12, he says, Job, it's impossible for God to do wrong. Justice is incompatible with his character. Far be it, in verse 10, for God to do wickedness, for the Almighty to do wrong. Verse 12, God will not act wickedly, and the Almighty will not prefer justice. Abraham said what? Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Always. Third, in verse 13, Elihu says, look, God is the creator. He possesses all authority. He's over everything. There's no one greater than him. No one can persuade God to be unjust. No one can influence him to do what is wrong because there is no one higher than him. Fourth, Elihu says in verse 14 and 15, God's goodness is demonstrated every day because he lets you live another day. We've talked about this. Your next breath is a gift. Your next heartbeat is a gift. Your next brainwave is a gift. Today is a gift. I tend to forget that when I get out of bed and bones start creaking and popping and I'm going, you know, some gift, right? And then I get in the shower and there's hot water and I go, oh no, that's a gift, right? I mean, and then I have my coffee and that's a real gift. You know, that, that starter fluid in your carburetor, for those of you that remember carburetors, that's kind of way back in the day. But anyway, yes, we, I, I need that stuff. So God blesses us in so many ways we take for granted. You know, you see a picture of your kid or grandchild and you go, whoa, that's a miracle. Sometimes it's a miracle when they talk to you, right? That's a gift, right? So God... His love is demonstrated, and his goodness is demonstrated to us in many, many, many ways every single day. Obviously, most of all through Jesus Christ, the Son, who came to give us salvation. And fifth, in verse 19, Job is told by Elihu, God is good and God is just because he treats everybody without partiality. The rich, the poor, the tall, the short, the powerful, the not powerful, He's creator of every single one, and he views every single person exactly as equal in God's sight. We have a big deal going on in our culture about equality, and has been for six and a half thousand years. Humans will not treat people with equality for the most part. We're sinful, fallen, self-centered little people, but God treats everybody equally because he created everybody equally in his sight. And Elihu says, Job, how can you claim God's unjust? Open your eyes and see how God operates. And God's perfect justice, by the way, is informed by his perfect knowledge. Elihu says, look, you can't claim God doesn't know everything. He's got all the facts on your life and everybody else's life. Go to verse 21 of 34. 34, 21. For God's eyes are upon the ways of a person, and he sees all his steps. There is no darkness or deep shadow where the workers of injustice can hide themselves, For God does not need to consider a person further that he should go before God in judgment. So he says, look, Job, God is a just God because he knows all the things all the time. He says, there's no unjust person that can conceal their activities from God. God doesn't need to do any homework. He doesn't need to do a study. He doesn't need to hire a group of PhDs to, you know, do a knowledge search of your life or consult with Google to get the facts on what's going on in your life. He knows it all. I know we struggle with this, but the reality is no one gets away with anything. It may look like they're getting away with something. You need to go read Psalm 73, but at the end of the day, 
everybody gets justice. Revelation 20 tells us that. God's perfect justice will be done, but it will be done in his time and his way. And our problem is, my problem especially, is I want him to do it now. I mean, I want him to throw lightning bolts. Yeah, no, not, that's not true. I want to throw the lightning bolts. That just get real. You know, I say, God, if you give me 10 of them, I could improve the world by sending some people to meet you face to face like this afternoon. And he says, that's precisely why you're never going to get lightning bolts. Just saying. So Elihu charges that Brad, I mean Job, is trying to dictate terms to God. Job, the sinful creature, is pressing charges against God, the perfect creator. Verse 33. I love this verse. Shall God repay on your terms because you have rejected his terms? Job speaks without knowledge and his words without wisdom. Oh, that Job were tested to the limit because he answers like sinners, for he adds rebellion to his sins and claps his hands among us and multiplies his, his words against God. You know, humans don't have the right to demand that God play the game by their rules. God created the universe, amen? And as the creator, does he have the right to make the rules for how his universe operates? Say yes. So if you want to make your own rules... Go make your own universe, and then you can make whatever rules you want, right? Job is speaking from ignorance. He doesn't know God's ways, and he's made himself the standard of judgment. He said, God has to conform to my standard of judgment. I don't have to conform to his standard of judgment. Now, we've heard this before, right? The, the author of this, of course, is Satan. It springs from pride. My will be done, not God's will be done. I want God to do things my way. And we've talked about this before. The theme song in hell is Frank Sinatra's song, I Did It My Way. And, of course, this is the essence of Job's final complaint. And his third complaint with God, his bellyache with God, is that God is unconcerned because he doesn't reward Job for his innocence. And that complaint is found in Job 10.7. And he's talking to God, and he says, According to your own knowledge, God, I am indeed not guilty, and yet... There's no deliverance from your hand. So he says, God, I know I'm innocent. You know I'm innocent. And you should relieve my suffering. And because you don't, I've concluded you don't care. And Elihu is going to respond to that. And he basically, with two arguments. Number one, he says, number one, Job, God is supremely sovereign. He's not harmed by human sin or benefited by human righteousness. God acts exactly as he chooses, and he can't be bribed by your good behavior, and he can't be influenced by your bad behavior either. And number two, God's not answering you because you're proud and you're self-centered. Job 35, verse 1. Elihu continued and said, Do you think this is an according to justice? Do you, Job, say, my righteousness is more than God's? For you say, what advantage will it be to you, God, what profit shall I have more than if I had sinned? Verse 6. If you have sinned, what do you accomplish against God? And if your righteous transgressions are many, what do you do to him? If you are righteous, what do you give to him, or what does he receive from your hand? Your wickedness is for a man like yourself, and your righteousness is for a son of man. Verse 12. There they cry out, but he does not answer because of the pride of evil men. Surely God will not listen to an empty cry, nor will the Almighty regard it, verse 14. How much less when you say you do not behold him, 
the case is before him, and you have to wait for him. Here's the principle. Sovereign God does not owe anyone anything, regardless of their behaviors. But he has promised to oppose the proud and accept the humble. Sovereign God does not owe anyone anything, regardless of their behaviors, but he has promised to oppose the proud and accept the humble. So Job is complaining that God doesn't reward his righteousness by stopping his suffering. Now this is the essence of let's make a deal with God. God, I behave well, and you give me the goodies in this life, right? Now this is a contract, right? It's a contract. So if I do ya da 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 then you got to do da-da-da-da-da. And guess what? I determine what you have to do. I write the contract. You have to give me what I want. Who sounds like they want to be in charge here? Yeah, we want to tell God how he should run his universe and what he should do with our life. Remember Satan's charge right at the beginning? Satan said, look, God, the only reason Job serves you, he doesn't love you. You're not worthy of love. He serves you because of all the goodies you give him. Job is talking like that now. He says, God, you're not giving me the goodies. I deserve a pain-free life, baby. Look at all the good stuff I've done. And we tend to do that with God. When God doesn't meet our expectations or people behave badly, especially God's people behave badly toward us, we get torqued, and I'm number one on that list, and God, you owe me, blah, blah, blah. And Elihu says, God, Job, you're a mercenary. You just serve God because you want God to give you the goodies. You don't care about God. You want God to reward your moral lifestyle with a pain-free life. Job says, in essence, look, I lived a righteous life before I lost everything. God bless me. I'm still living a righteous life after I lost everything, and now I'm suffering. God owes me earthly blessings because I'm, I'm righteous. I'm innocent. And many people believe that today. And they try and do business with God on that way. We should be extremely grateful God does not give us what we deserve. If your child ever says, Dad or Mom, I just want justice, you will say, no, you don't understand. What you want is mercy. What you're going to get is justice if you don't shut up like now, right? So Elihu says, look, Job, you can behave badly or you can behave well, and you're not going to change God. God is righteous, and your behavior doesn't shape him. He expects you to behave righteously because he is God, but he's not going to change his behavior based on your behavior. This is one of the key lessons of the book of Job is that God, we don't have a contract relationship with God, we have a love relationship with God. That he is our father and he gives us on the basis of grace because he loves us, not on the basis of what we deserve. Job has exalted his own righteousness more than God's justice. And this is the creature telling the creator what to do and how to do it and when to do it. And Elias says, by the way, if you want to know why God's not answering you, is because you're proud and you're self-centered. James 4, 6 says, God's opposed to the proud, gives grace to the humble. And Elihu goes even further. He says, God doesn't respond to, quote, empty prayers. 
You ever prayed an empty prayer? You know what it is? An empty prayer is one that's prayed with great sincerity and great selfishness. It's called a gimme prayer. Oh, God, I got a list. See this list? And it's all about me, 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 gimme, 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 fix this, do that. By the way, take care of that over there. And those people over there, knock them off. And those people over there, exalt them. And give me a good job and lots of money. And, and you know, sister-in-law is a real pain because you give her a laryngitis for a week or two. You know, I mean, <laughs> well, I mean, come on. I'm just talking the real world. That's how we tend to pray, right? How much of our prayers are all about the most important person in the universe? C'est moi, c'est moi, right? Instead of God. James 2.4 nails me to the wall. It says, you do not have because you do not ask. Oh, yes, I do. But, Brad Hannock, you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. See, self-centered prayers don't exalt God. They exalt me. Job says, God, or Elihu says, Job, you don't see God taking action, right? And you're irate that you have to wait for him. Like, he should wait for you. Because God is patient with you, Job, you've gotten bolder, you've gotten more arrogant, and you wonder why God hadn't responded to your demands. He's resisting your pride. He's resisting your self-centeredness. He's God, and he has purposes beyond which you understand. Now, the reality is God is sovereign, but he's also a father who loves his children. But he can't be bribed by our good behavior. And he can't be corrupted by our bad behavior either. He will always do what is right, and he will always love us. See, we don't understand this. There is nothing you can do that will cause God to love you more than he loves you right now. And of course, we humans go, what do you mean? If I really ratchet it up and behave well, he won't love me more? No. You mean if I really screw up, he won't love me less? No. His love never changes. He's not like us. He loves because of who he is, not because of what we do. That's why we're so confident in his love, because it's not flaky like ours is. Sometimes you've probably heard your children say, I have, if you love me, you will let me have my way. And you say, well, you assume that I love you, right? No, that's not what you say, right? You say, right now, I don't. No, you don't say that either. No, what you say is, because I love you, I will certainly not give you your way because your way is not the best way, right? That's, what, of course, what you said 30 years ago. God's way is always the best way. And when God says no, it's an expression of his love in the same way that when he says yes, it's an expression of his love. His love never changes. And Job's going to find that out next week, who God is. So we've, we've, we've concluded that the human dialogue, this book has been 37 chapters of horizontal conversations. And these folks have missed each other right and left. I mean, it's been like a disaster. They've been talking by each other, at each other, to each other, but there's been almost no communication. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to pick up 
Job in beginning in verse in chapter 38, and God is going to speak for four chapters. And he asks Job 77 questions that he already knows all the answers to. Job doesn't know any of the answers. Very, very enlightening. Okay, let's summarize this and then we'll do prayer and praise. Principle one, God communicates with people in many ways, but most people don't listen. That's pretty clear. Number two, pain in the present can prevent sin in the future. If we learn the lessons God is teaching us, and that's up to us to learn them, he's certainly a master teacher. We just have to be willing. Number three, since our sovereign God is infinitely powerful and completely good, we can always trust him to do what's right. And by the way, that assumes we don't know what he's doing. Most of the time, we don't know what he's doing. So it is based on trust. It is based on love. And lastly, sovereign God does not owe anyone anything, regardless of good or bad behavior. But he has promised to oppose the proud and accept the humble. All right, thank you for being here. Lord willing, next week we'll um, finish Job, and then we'll pick up the parable for a few weeks in Ecclesiastes, before we jump back to the New Testament. So thank you for coming. Now that you know. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to manabiblepodcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.